This is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today we have our second guest, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Hi, how are you guys? Doing pretty well. Pretty good. Yeah, I guess to begin with, what is your background in science? What are your interests in science? So I am also an entomologist, and my research interests primarily lay in museum collections, particularly collections management, and also biological control and insect-plant interactions. In the past, I've worked with Lodoptera, which is butterflies and moths, for many, many years since high school. I have primarily worked with curation of Lepidoptera collections before, but I've done just general surveys of butterfly population and abundance during prescribed burns. And then for my master's thesis, I primarily worked with nymphalid butterflies, the brushed butterflies, in particular the white peacock, which is a pretty common butterfly in the southeastern United States. And I was looking at the caterpillar defenses in relation to their host plant. From 2016 to 2017, I was on a species description project and uh, working on a cryptic species complex of Raconid wasps. So what a cryptic species complex is, it's a species that originally was thought to be one species, but in reality is several different species. And often they look very similar morphologically. So if there hasn't been a lot of study done with their either genetic information or the ecological information, you would never know. And in this case, there was genetic markers that indicated instead of being one species, there was between three to 12 different species. And it was part of my job to sit down and look at all these tiny little parasitic wasps, that's what Bacronic wasps are, and try and suss out what was the differences. And in some of the cases, there wasn't really much of a morphological difference. It was maybe more of a ecological difference that maybe they were separated by hosts or seasons that they flew in because maybe one was active in the spring whereas one was active in the fall or geographic range because these wasps are from Australia which is an entire continent and the particular one that I was working with was originally found in Tasmania but then we found them in other areas like New South Wales etc. So that's sort of what I've done with species description, I tend to be more on the management and curation side than the research side of things. What drew you to curation? What happened was I got a biology degree and my first day at the university, I went and saw my advisor and I was like, oh, I like bugs. And he was like, we're sending you down to the insect collection. And I had no idea they had this because it was just one of those things that they just didn't really talk about on the website. So I worked there for four years as a student assistant and then later as their outreach coordinator where I did a lot of the educational events. When I originally went in to get a biology degree, I thought I was going to end up in environmental education. And I also had maybe thought maybe I would end up as a park ranger. However, as things went on, I just found that I really enjoyed the curation work because it was working with specimens and I had originally wanted to be a librarian, but I couldn't bring myself to do an English major because it would have sucked all the fun out of reading for me and writing. (laughs) And what I found was museums basically are the libraries of life and each specimen is essentially a book on the shelf. And I was basically doing library work, but bugs. My junior year of undergrad, I was like, this is what I want to do. So I talked to my boss, who was the collection manager, who is an awesome dude. And he's still done a lot of really great things for me. And he basically said, okay, we're going to 
give you more responsibility and more projects to work on to make sure that this is something you want to do. So that's sort of how I fell into the museum world. When I ended up in the museum world and when I started doing things, I was like, oh shit, this is exactly like working in a library. It's the same public facing stuff with education. It's the same cataloging. It's the same kind of curating your materials and having the resources available to the public and to the academics. And that's sort of what made me fall in love with it because I've always liked bugs. I have loved bugs since I was a very, very tiny child. One of my earliest memories is of sitting in the grass and just watching the bugs. So it was just something really cool that I could do to kind of take what I really liked about the library world and apply it to entomology. Yeah, I'm just I'm just vibing with this description. So my question, so I am, I have kind of a grudge against Lepidoptera. I knew this was coming. Everyone does. I, yeah. I, as soon as I it, open my mouth listen. and say, I like leps, some real yeah. person. Some grasshopper person, some moss person comes out of the woodwork and goes, you like the little brown moths? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. I Well, so I have kind of a grudge against Lepidoptera because as you say, it's because I, because my favorite group is Dictyoptera. Um, <laughs> yeah. For, well, for anybody who is um, sort of unaware in the audience, Dictyoptera is mantises, cockroaches, and termites, which are like two thirds of those are among the most hated insects. So it's I know that it's very petty, but I do kind of have a grudge against leps and against like ladybugs and a couple of more charismatic beetles for just like being the glory hogs of the insect world. Listen, I have a thing about beetles. I give beetles a lot of shit because I've worked with beetle people who are wonderful, but I just don't get the appeal of beetles. Even though I do really like weevils, but all the weevils I have worked with have been bad weevils. (laughs) I actually am in a weevils lab now. So like all of the entomologists around me are beetle people (laughs) and I'm lost. Right now, we're in a particularly acute museum crisis, but like my, because I said I applied to the same like museum studies program and I did get rejected mostly because I wanted to work specifically on taxonomy of non-Lepidoptera groups and the person (laughs) I applied with was like, you know, we're in a Lepidoptera ecology lab. I don't know what to do with you. I yeah, like, okay. I worked with that. I worked with Dean and she was great. She was the advisor I wish I had much sooner in my academic career. And honestly, my time at CU was an incredible struggle because of mental health issues and other things going on in the background. And Dean was probably the best advisor I could have ever asked for and got in because she was really supportive and she really did her best. And even when I was not really doing well and just didn't know how to tell her what to do to help me she still tried and i feel with museums and the museum program in general like one of the things with it is that they wanted you to have at least two years of experience and that was like one of the things that really drew me to it because it made it go okay this is serious and it was one of the few programs that actually dealt with natural history because a lot of the other ones i found were more art or public administration or education related. Whereas I knew exactly I wanted to do this very specific. I wanted to do questions management, 
international history question, preferably with insects, but I'll do other inverts. I hate mammals. Sorry. I Preach just it. do. Please. Um, <laughs> Down with mammals. We'll never have a mammologist on the podcast. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You can come on, but you will be disrespected. And my one <laughs> thesis uh, committee member is a mammologist, so like... I have worked with mammologists. I did take mammalogy and I did so bad at it that my professor was like, do you, are you just not doing well because you hate mammals? And I was like, yes, <laughs> I hate Get rid of them. No, the only good mammal is a mammal that is serving as a host for inverts. And that's that on that. No, I'm kidding. We love cats here and I guess other ones yeah i've always had rabbits i was in 4-h and i've always done rabbits so like i do like mammals i just am a very bitter entomologist who has to contend with conservation funding Ugh, yeah well it's i have a couple things to say one is when i was an undergrad i took an animal diversity course because of course i did and a annoying that it was so skewed towards vertebrates how dare you I was about to say most of the most of the biodiversity on this planet is invertebrates. Right? So that was annoying. B, mammals are excruciating because it's all about like skull morphology details. People say that flies are hard, but once you're used to the, you know, the basic landscape of a fly, skulls are nonsense. Because this is the thing, with fly like wing venation. It, it, it's it's intimidating to begin with, but then you're like, oh, that's that vein, that's that vein, that's that oh, vein, whatever. Oh, you're talking to someone who struggles with wing venation. Okay, I work okay, with okay. a fly guy, and he just he tried helping me, and I still, like, you would think as a lodoptrist, like, someone who works with them and someone who's had to do moth ID, I would be able to, like, know the wings, but, like... This is I actually... Just, I. I just yeah, look uh, at them and it's just like a pile of lines and I and like I do scientific illustration and I try my best and I still screw up the wing venations when I draw it and the only wing venation I have ever learned is Burkhanid versus Ipiman because it's a horse head. It is a horse head. <laughs> that is literally the only one I can remember. Well, I, this is actually interesting. I don't act because I have so studiously avoided leps. I don't actually know what the like suite of common because like when you're identifying flies, you generally begin with like ketotaxi and like wing venation. So what do you do with leps? Cause... So it depends on the group of leps you're working with. If okay. it's butterflies, like, oh, dude, you don't have to even worry about it. Um, I mean, generally with butterflies, you don't even care about wing venation. You go straight for the gonads and look at those if you have things that you just aren't sure what it is or you rear it out if you find the caterpillar but when we're starting to talk about things like micromoths the lbds mm. sorry the lbms not the lbds the lbds are my bitter enemy the little brown beetles um the lbms like you have to look at venation you have to look at genitalia you have to look at life histories to id them and I know someone was like, oh, you should go to grad school for micromoths. And I was like, I would rather do anything else. I will walk backwards into hell. Yeah. When I had to take the intro to insect diversity course as, as a master's student, the identifying moths was the most 
It was just the most miserable time. It's terrible. I actually have a question for Tessa, which is we have referenced genitalia. Are you familiar with the importance of genitalic structure in insect identification? I am not actually, and I am curious to hear how that became the defining characteristic. Tessa, if you've ever met a beetle person, if you've ever met a bee person, all you need to know is that they look at dicks all day. They all look day. at bug dicks all day. I know because I was one of those people. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's actually a specific word for bug dicks. Tessa, did you know this? No, I did not. I don't. Aaron, do you know how to pronounce it? Oh, if you type it in, I can try. Um, okay. I... Just a minute. Let me try and I find. I think that's the spelling. I actually was a science consultant because I was an entomologist on this book about the evolution of the dick. And I'm trying to find the title because y'all should read it because it is highly entertaining and they talk about some of my favorite gross bug sex things ever. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, no, so in insect identification, well, Aaron, do you want to like just describe the importance of genitals and why genitals are important in identification? Oh, oh, adigus. Yeah, that's the word. So I always think that it's more syllables than that, but it's also, not. Also, I say things incorrectly, so you might have someone go, "Wow, uh, that's not how you say it." But... Well, the, I mean, the thing about it in in you know scientific terms is that because they are engineered. Like, mm-hmm. theoretically, there's actually no correct way in if we're going with, like, a prescriptivist understanding of language where the right way is just defined by common usage. So I think you're fine. Yes. However, I have met other people who are not into that. <laughs> well, you can t- well, you can tell them that I have one half of a linguistics degree. And I say I'm right, so. Okay, so I found the book, and the book is called Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Kingdom by Emily Willingham. I read the entire thing while doing consulting, and it is great. Please read it. I will check that out. Yeah, I saw that, and I transcended because of how great the title is. There is exactly two chapters on insects. It is the best. Finally, we are recognized for our weird obsession with beetle decks. <laughs> Reproductive isolation is one of the key things to determine what is a species. They have to be reproductively isolated from each other. So with insects... I just want to interject. I knew you were going to do this, so go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Important in one model of what a species is. In the biological model. So in the biological model, which is more about um, reproductive isolation, is in order for something to be a species, is it has to be reproductively isolated from each other through several different mechanisms, either one or more, and that they cannot successfully produce a viable offspring or zygote. So a lot of insects look very similar when I say little brown moth or little brown beetle, the LBMs and the LBDs, there's a reason why there's a term for it because they all look the same. Unless you're someone who specifically works on that group, on that genus, and can just look at it under a scope and go, yeah. To a lot of people who maybe aren't 
in the taxonomy side of these entomology subfields who maybe are like ecologists or natural history people like me, um, they can't just go, oh yeah, that's different. So in order to be 100% sure that's different, what we do is we look at the genitalia because the genitalia often is has slightly different structures, whether it be different hairs, different number of segments, and that allows for reproductive isolation through mechanical means, which means it just doesn't work when they try. So that's why there is such an emphasis on bug dicks and the systematics and taxonomy side of entomology. Ah, okay. That does make sense. And it, you know, it extends to reproductive structures more broadly. Like mm -hmm. I, between my master's and my, and starting my PhD program, I worked on a taxonomy project on a specific genus of um, tephridity, which mm -hmm. is so the 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 you know the world at large um, knows drosophility as fruit mm -hmm. flies. Drosophility being Drosophila, the you know the flies that are used a lot in genetics and that show up when you have rotting fruit in your kitchen. Um, they, so, you know the hoi polloi know those as fruit flies, but entomologists and specifically dipterists, people mm -hmm. who work on true flies, um, know tephridity as fruit flies. So we're correct. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I worked on the, uh, a project on the taxonomy of a specific genus and tephratoid flies. So those in the superfamily tephratoidea have a structure where they have like a sclerotized ovipositor, yeah. which is, it's a characteristic, like a specific ovipositor is a characteristic. This is mostly for your benefit, Tessa. <laughs> uh, do you know what an ovipositor is? Yeah, it's uh, the structure they use to lay eggs and things. And I yeah. know in wasps and bees, it also is the, the sort of base structure for the stinger. Mm -hmm. Great job. Um, yes. So most true flies have lost like a dedicated ovipositor, but tephratoids like... They have it. Yeah, they've like reverse engineered a separate structure to act as a, a sclerotized, hardened ovipositor. Anyway, so I spent basically nine months just very carefully pulling the ovipositor or um, the aculeus out of the abdomen and looking at the ridges along the very end of it to identify, like to discriminate between different species. Yeah, and that's something that just doesn't like happen as much in like the broader um sections of entomology i've been in because like i said i've been in the beetle world because my boss was a beetle dude and i've worked in the grasshopper world oh dear lord my um it's funny i was reading fallacy and my first ever research advisor there he was um a quoted in it and i was like i was like god entomology i was like entomology is such a small world but like and Hymenoptera, that is something that does get look at, uh, looked at is the ovipositors because different ovipositor tips have different ridges and often you have to look at them with the SEM. Yeah. But, well, and also as a as a side note, I guess, ovipositors are, are considered particularly important within Hymenoptera evolution. Tessa, do you know the term Hymenoptera? Um, I've heard of it, but I can't link it to, to like a, a common name right now. Well, yeah, it's basically one of the four like well, four or five, depending on who you ask. That's a separate issue. Mega diverse orders of insects. And it includes wasps, bees, ants, 
and soft lies. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And so in, like, I was taught at least that a lot of, like, the overarching story of Hymenoptera evolution is that the the lion's share of diversity within Hymenoptera are in parasitic and parasitoid yeah, groups. Yeah, parasitoid groups are the most diverse. Um, I worked in a parasitoid lab, so I'm going to just say that out yeah. now. <laughs> and, and so the story there is that a lot of groups in Hymenoptera have developed very specific ovipositor adaptations so that they can get their eggs into a variety of different substrates. Right. And then, of course, and you, as you said, in Aculeata, which is a subgroup of Hymenoptera, um, the ovipositor then has become a stinger. And this is why only female insects will sting you, because male insects literally don't have the apparatus. Yeah, you can just literally pick up a male bumblebee and he'll just be like, buzzing but he won't do anything to you yeah there's somebody that i follow on twitter who works with paper wasps and she has oh just all these gorgeous polices and she has a lot of videos of just like holding male wasps because what are they gonna do yeah they're not gonna <laughs> do anything yeah so what were we talking about oh you were uh, you were asking me to explain why the genitalia is like a big yes. deal in entomology what were we talking about before that then i don't I think remember museums... oh this is what I was going to ask. So we are in a particularly acute crisis for museums now because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But even before then, there's been this sort of general sense that museums are kind of doomed. I don't know if you've gotten that sense. Oh, dear Lord. Um, so this is a ongoing conversation within museum circles that they that basically there's been... Some people will blame it on various things, but there's been a move away from the natural history side of things and a move away from museums, which makes it much harder to get funding. And a lot of this is, is we're seeing academic museums that are with institutions like universities being shuttered, packed up, um, destroyed, or sent. in best case, they get sent on to another museum. In worst case, they are literally destroyed and thrown out like what almost happened in Louisiana with the one major fish collection because people these days don't necessarily realize the value of having these collections of specimens because there has been a move away from the natural history side, especially with the advent of DNA analysis because now you can run it through the DNA and there's so many other more applications and it's like okay now specimens maybe they're useless because now we can just run the dna but that's not true because we can get dna from specimens and we do that all the time and there's also been a lot of more chatter in the ecology side of things about how we need to voucher because vouchering is essential and I don't know when this shift started, but I think it started in the 70s and 80s that we started to get away from the natural history side of things and teaching natural history in um, biology classes, etc. So like for me, I know when I went to school, I specifically took classes that required me to make collections. But when people think of natural history, 
they often think, okay, natural history is something of the past, it's stuffy, it's old, it has all these other not really savory connotations to it when it's in fact a very powerful tool to use for understanding Earth's biodiversity. And often what happens is if we don't know it's there, we won't know it's gone. And that's why natural history museums are so essential nowadays because they have the specimens, they have the historic records. Like one researcher can maybe get funding to do a monitoring project for five years, but a natural history museum will have voucher specimens and records for a hundred years. Right. So looking at the records, mm -hmm. yeah. So there's been a lot of discussion of how this is really important and how we need to revitalize and bring this back because museums seem to be doomed because they haven't really, people haven't been really taught their value or their importance. And that was really a lot of my job as outreach coordinator to at the University of Central Florida Collection of Arthropods, the Bug Closet to teach the general public, to teach students about this is a resource here for you, for you to be able to look at these historical records, to come and look and see what is in your backyard. And that's another thing is people don't realize that they can come to a museum and see the back end if they contact us, because we are usually more than happy to show you because we want you to know that this is what's here and we want you to appreciate what you have. And there's been a lot of discussion about museums just in general with the how implicit they are in the systematic oppression of marginalized groups. And that's another reason why maybe museums have seemed to be doomed is because there hasn't been really this turning point where we turn around and go, hey, maybe we need to actually like fix what we did with our harm. And that's been in the past 30 years that we've been like, oh shit, we need to actually start fixing these issues because we have caused great harm. And it's kind of just this avalanche of different things of the move away from natural history, the move away from funding these very not immediate gratification projects that it's very much what can this do for me how does this help humanity but sometimes the tangible outcomes aren't as tangible as the funding wants it to be frequently a common problem in science that yes and then the also the realization that there has been issues with the culture of museums and there's been sort of this old guard issue too where we have a lot of older people and they're starting to age out retire and pass away which is great because that means younger people like me actually have a chance because often museums like you literally have to wait for someone to die before you can get a job because they're in there for so long so like it's really a combination of the science funding trends and how science funding in the US at least has been growing smaller and smaller and harder and harder to get. And it's harder and harder every year to justify having these large collections, justify having these things despite their usefulness, despite that they have these tangible benefits. That is just kind of a snowball effect. Yeah. Well, I have. Two thoughts. One is, I, I think your point about there just isn't a quick turnaround on like return on investment, which is, 
a, a really toxic idea in science to begin with for anything. But particularly for museums, you're not going to see it pay dividends in terms of what you're getting out of it in five years or 10 years or maybe 50 years. But if you want to do like a conservation study and you want to compare population density of a species in 1850 versus now, we don't have time machines. And I've, I've heard from physicists that we probably never will. So the only way to access 1850 is through museum collections that have materials from 1850. And then secondly, I'd, I think you brought up briefly the idea of harms of museums. And this is interesting to me, particularly in like the natural history space, where often when people talk about sort of bad museums, we talk about overtly, like obviously bad things, like the British Museum having a lot of looted artifacts. And I wonder if, if this resonates with you at all. The harms of natural history as a field and of natural historical collections to me feels a lot more subtle. Natural history museums and just museums in general, like museums originally were created to show either wealth or to show civilization and civilization's progress. That is what museums were created to be. It is the earliest documents around museums and what they are explicitly say that. And when I talk about the biological side of things, I want to kind of just say that people don't always realize that it's not just artifacts that are in natural history museums, it is specimens and specimens and the biological side. So like zoology collections, they have also has this, um, they have been implicated and have always been implicit in colonization and imperialism because where did your specimens come from? How did you get them? Whose land did they come from? Who gave you the right to take them? And furthermore, there has been many, many ties between, if you look up Miniac, his story is absolutely heartbreaking. And it's an example of how natural history collections on the biological society have been used to dehumanize indigenous peoples and uphold white supremacy. A bug specimen itself is a bug specimen, but if you think about where did it come from, who collected it, and where it came from, then you start realizing, oh, okay, this is this is an outcome of what everything museums are built on and came from. When I talk about museums and ethics, there are many onions layers to this, like many layers of onions. So we start out with, okay, we see the obvious issues with looted artifacts, looted archaeological sites, um, art not being given back, um, special cultural objects being displayed when they shouldn't or not being returned to the people they originally were stolen from. And that's usually talked about within the context of anthropology. But then if we think about it and think about how museums originally used to display human skeletons of indigenous people then and that's a biological specimen which is it feels so gross and so awful to say and originally those specimens those people their remains were displayed along with the zoological specimens and anthropology materials so there wasn't a divide until maybe the 60s when we started going oh maybe we shouldn't display human skeletons human remains 
that sort of thing. So there's been this very long history where the biology side of things is just as complicit as the anthropology and cultural side of things. And that's kind of what I mean by the harm that it's caused and not to mention that the people who are in charge often were white and male and were, and were essentially the gatekeepers of the field. And in the past 20 some years or so, there has been more women in museums, but they're mostly white. There's not very many people of color professionals out there there aren't a lot of openly queer professionals that I know of, at least in the natural history side of things. There may be more in the art side because art has always been more open to that. Well, a lot of art is more explicitly... Transgressive? Well, yeah, and I, well, I was going to just say gay. Like art is, a lot of art is just obviously gay. Um like exactly what you're saying about the source of specimens, because this is something that I struggle a lot with natural history, particularly with entomology, where the lion's share of entomological diversity is in relatively tropical areas. And so our understanding of the full breadth of insect diversity comes from this legacy of imperialism, colonialism, and very entitled European exploration. It's hard for me to sometimes talk about it right off the top of my head because there's so much, like every class I took in my program, we literally had an ethics module. I know NAGPRA by heart at this point. I know a lot of the laws and I know a lot of the ethics and I know a lot of the case studies. And there's just, there is that legacy of this is where our specimens came from. And this is where our understanding came from. And we have to acknowledge and understand that we caused harm and now we have to make amends for it if that means support and that can mean a variety of things supporting marginalized scientists supporting research in those areas collaborating with them if we're doing research in that area and many times now with a lot of the import export laws you have to have a collaborator in that specific region in order to even bring your stuff or you have to leave it there and they get to work on it. One thing that we haven't talked about yet, Erin, is your blog and uh, reviewing science fiction. Yeah, so I am pretty deep, well, I wouldn't say deep in, but I'm fairly involved in certain segments of the science fiction book community because science fiction has been a constant thread in my life. I actually, science fiction, like ever since I was a little kid, like it has been a big part of my life because it's one of those things where I saw myself in it because growing up, I always, like I said, I've been mentally ill since I was at least 10. I can remember anxiety attacks as early as six. So like, that's really like, I've always known that there was something off about me. So seeing myself and characters that are aliens or characters that are escaping from a normal world to their true home, which is a magical world, that sort of stuff really resonated with me. And I loved Star Trek growing up and like, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am non-binary and it was a, it took me a very long time to get there. And without science fiction, I would have not gotten there because a book came out in 2013 called Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. Excellent book, by the way. If anyone needs a recommendation. Please read it. It is literally my favorite book ever. It basically, it changed my life. It's very hard for me to talk about it without not 
crying because the author Anne Leckie is also a very kind and gracious human being and tries her best to be a good ally and it was the book that kind of like through it I met an entire community of queer people of trans people and things started to click and I saw myself in the characters and first it was very much like okay well I'm gay I like girls but the lesbian label has never felt right for me and later it turned out well duh it's because you're not a girl so because of this book it was basically what kickstarted me to finally start to process and stop shoving myself into a box that had caused me a lot of really unhappiness and pain over the years and it allowed me to meet a lot of people who I hang out and out with and who are really good friends and who have gotten me through some really hard times and because of this I named this sea sheets that I described after Anne and I sent this really nerdy email to her to ask her if it was okay where I talked about the wasp and how I had purple eyes like the one character teaser lot and how it was going to be released through biological control and do annexation and all this other stuff and she said yes and it was like just really wonderful because the book itself is just very it was very healing for me very cathartic the characters they are non-binary and in their culture they don't have gender but lucky chose to use she her pronouns as a for several reasons some to subvert the trope of in writing originally when it was taught for many many years you were supposed to use he him as the general like gender neutral pronoun for any person that you were gonna like say what their gender was instead of they them and anyways that's getting off on a tangent but this book is very much one of the things is it won many awards it got me it renewed my love for the genre because I was feeling so burned out with the genre. I wasn't finding things I liked. I was feeling very alienated by the genre. And then I read this book and I met other people like me and I saw myself in these characters and it helped me start to unpack and learn to live with who I am truly and accept myself. And Chapter 9 of Ancillary Mercy is probably one of the most important sections of any piece of literature I've ever loved because it very much it got me through a lot of my depressive issues and a lot of the other stuff going on in my life because it basically was like you are a person worthy of love even if you can't conceive that you can be loved. So I am a diehard Lucky fan and because of that I got involved in the Ratch fandom, which is a very wonderful, sweet little fandom, and I really love my friends in it, and they're great, and that, because of Anne, and because of my friends, I started writing, like, seriously again, and submitting fiction, and I got published last year in a science fiction magazine specifically for trans and non-binary stuff, and, like, I'm not gonna, like, outright say, like, what parts of the story, but if you read the story, and if you read Ratch, you can really see the influence, and yeah, so the story is called Blossoming Callisto, and it's about a gay IA. So, like, you can kind of see my influences. So, because of that, like, that book is just so influential. And because of that book, and because I kept having people come to me and be like, okay, you like ancillary justice, so you must know all the gay science fiction, 
I started writing reviews, try to reuse science fiction that are by marginalized folks, because that is the one thing that I get asked for a lot is, hey, what are other books that are good that are gay or by gay people or by people who aren't white or about people who aren't white, that sort of thing. It's very much, I already was reading these books. I was already discussing these books and it just made sense to start writing reviews. But like, because of because of these books and because of queer sci-fi, like I got really into and found a different community and found my trans community that I wasn't finding in science. And I really can talk a lot about how like how positive like the science fiction community has been on my life. And like right now, like I'm really deep into Tasman's Mirror getting the knife series because it's probably yeah, that's where I met Tessa actually. <laughs> um <laughs> which is it's very different from Rash and it's interesting because what i found in ratch with ratch i found my gender and my queerness the locked tomb series which i've already read the next book which comes out on tuesday but just with both books i see my mental illness in it i see it and it's very much reading it is like mirrors writing i see you this is for you i've struggled with the same things so it's a different sort of healing because I had to come into my own with my queerness before I could really start to work on my mental illness and understand how it, how everything worked together because it was just one piece of the puzzle. Because what I liked about those books was that there was magic, but it was science. Do you have any sort of concluding thoughts, things that we didn't get to, things that you want people to know, interesting bug fact? Well, why don't I just talk for a few minutes about my actual master's thesis because we literally haven't even got into it because I was so busy ranting about museums. So what I did for my master's was when I say, okay, I studied white peacock butterflies and their defensive behavior in relation to host plants. What I really mean is I made caterpillars puke for two summers. Don't we all? Um, that my research is actually focused on regurgitation as a um, defense mechanism because regurgitation can sometimes contain um, secondary compounds that are sequestered or taken up from the plants. And these butterflies had recently shifted to using Plantago lanceolata, which contains aerodic glycosides, a toxin that other butterflies use as defense in their caterpillar stage and sometimes as adult stage. I originally didn't know what I was going to exactly do for my master's thesis and my advisor Dean, who is absolutely great, she was like, oh hey, I have these caterpillars. For people who aren't familiar with Dean's work, she is basically the caterpillar, caterpillar lady. She focuses on caterpillar ecology in relation to chemical defenses. And she was like, hey, I have these caterpillars that puke. And I was like, oh my god, that's so cool. So I ended up doing caterpillar torture or aka I pinch them to make them puke and it doesn't hurt them. I use soft forceps and stuff. So what I found was that regurgitating actually does have a negative impact on their development, but like it doesn't really seem to change that much between host plants. But I have to do more research on it and hopefully I get to publish my thesis in next year because it's been slow going because of COVID that I wanted to do it by now, but just things have slowed down. Erin, where can people find you online? So you can find me at my review blog at insectoidreviews.wordpress.com. And you can find me on Twitter at insectoidreview or Bug Wrangler. I don't use Bug Wrangler very often, but that is my professional one. So sometimes I will post if I have a paper published. 
And if you're interested in my research and my botanical and scientific illustration, you can check me out at erinrfarbo.wordpress.com. And I also have an art Instagram, which is at Caterpillar Creative. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. <laughs> yeah, and Tessa? Oh, and I'm on Twitter at Spacer Mace. And you can find the show on Twitter at ASABpod or at our website, ASABpodcast.com. We are currently on Apple Podcasts, and we will soon also be on Spotify.